This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. Welcome to the Concepts Podcast, where today we're going to try something different. And what is that? Steve is going to be teaching me this time. So instead of me having notes in front of me and working through them and constantly having to get back on track, I get to be the one led by the nose down this garden path. So, Steve, what are we talking about today? Well, I thought it'd be interesting to talk about cognitive distortions today. All right. And what would those be? Have you ever heard of cognitive distortions? I know what both of those words mean. I know cognitive and cognition just as a fancy word for thinking. And distortion obviously means it's uh, it's not accurate. It's not as it should be. Yeah. So I'm guessing distorted thinking, basically, not thinking clearly. Exactly, exactly. And so this is a, a super important concept in therapy. And I guess you can see why I chose the topic, because it's something I'm highly familiar with. Doing every day, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I just, it's one of those things that I find when, when you hear about them, they can lead to a lot of insight into your own behaviors and, and thought processes and, and, mm. and just simply knowing about them uh, gives you insight and gives you the ability to, to look at maybe different ways of doing things to get more of what you want and less of what you don't want. So what it sounds like you're saying is that knowing is half the battle. <laughs> exactly. And that's the, that's the importance of insight in therapy. Uh, insight is, is really half the battle. Well, that clearly does have a lot to do with the podcast so far, because from the feedback we've gotten on the first couple episodes, it seems like just knowing about fixed mindsets and hedgehogs and all that has been beneficial for the listeners to examine their own lives. Yeah. And, and we don't necessarily have to, you don't have to go into intensive therapy to actually have productive, practical takeaways. Just learning about this stuff, you'll, you'll start to see it popping up. Now, if you are starting to see it and, and you're still unable to, to rein it in and change behaviors, then I guess it might be worth looking into some kind of therapeutic relationship. But uh, hopefully our goal here is just to start that process, maybe plant a seed, get some insight and some practical takeaways. One thing I wanted to touch on just that you mentioned, you said therapeutic relationships. I wanted to clarify that I'm pretty sure it's bad practice to use personal relationships as a counselor a lot of time. You should mm -hmm. probably find somebody that you don't have a relationship with if you're going to look for a counselor. Thank you for bringing that up because I use that as a clinical term to mean a high quality relationship with a counselor. It's an actual commonly used term in the in the counseling field. But yes, therapeutic relationship does not mean to depend on a friend, a spouse or a son or daughter or something. Yeah. In which they can be supportive. They can provide a lot of initial support, but often they're too close to the situation to really dig into some of these things that we're going to talk about today. Right. And I think maybe as is often the case in the psych profession, that a lot of these clinical terms get changed because they end up becoming insults. And what I was just thinking was instead of saying a therapeutic relationship, I considered saying uh, seek professional help. But that has actually become kind of like a slinging mud phrase these days where... <laughs> You need professional help. Yeah, you're crazy. Get out of here, basically. Yeah, I, w I would never uh, encourage that type of... <laughs> Seek professional help. You're ill. <laughs> As the professional help, yes. Uh... <laughs> 
<laughs> be very careful with that use of it. All right. So how do you want to approach these uh, cognitive distortions? How many you got? There's a whole load of them and, and a lot of them are very similar to one another. So maybe we can just go through the list and just talk about each one as they come up, but uh, maybe skip over some that are getting a little bit repetitive. Sure. And so this, this information in this list you can be found on positivepsychology.com. It's a website that we did cite before in the past. I do recall you, you mentioning them. Yeah, actually, I was wondering if you were familiar with that. And if it's credible, because it seemed fine from that article, but I, I've never seen them before. So how do you know much about the site? Yeah, they have a lot of high quality articles that are pretty comprehensive. You know, it's it, it would be hit and miss. So certain articles may be way better than other articles. There's a there's a wide kind of mix in there. But uh, this one on cognitive distortions looks pretty good from what I've seen. Hmm. Also, I want to just point out that positive psychology is the specific discipline of finding ways to make people thrive. And that's where the positive psychology came about, because in the past, it was just about mm -hmm. getting people to not be crazy or not be sick. Yeah. Probably shouldn't use the word crazy in this context. But yeah, just touching on that. Anyway, let's move on. Yeah. So cognitive distortions, uh, it's a central feature of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is one of the, the most common evidence-based therapeutic practices used today. Also called CBT. Also called it CBT, yes. And so this concept was in this type of therapeutic approach, this cognitive therapeutic approach developed by uh, Aaron Beck and David Burns. So maybe we can just start getting into one of these distortions. Shoot. All or nothing thinking. Mm. So this is called black and white thinking, all or nothing thinking, or polarized thinking. How is this differentiated from splitting? And I guess it could be very similar to that. Okay. It's, it's the unwillingness to see shades of gray. Ha. And so something is all good or all bad. <laughs> That's funny you laugh because I think I know what you mean by that. Our whole, our whole podcast is shades of gray. And so all or nothing thinking is, is really the antithesis of our ethos. Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. And I'm laughing actually <laughs> partially because, yeah, that's basically what the podcast is about. Again, it's about having conversations about interesting topics with nuance and kind of thinking them out as we go. Kind of, I'm hoping to like model better conversations. <laughs> I mean, we've known each other a long time, so it's easy to have a, like a decent conversation between us. Mm -hmm. But what I was actually laughing about was this current exchange I've had on Reddit mm -hmm. where I'm trying to do that same thing. I'm trying to model a civil discussion on the Internet, which is often a losing battle. And this is one of those times. Oh. Basically, wow. I said that they were talking about how terrible Fox was because I think Lou Dobbs was just canceled. And I only know these guys by face and name and uh, kind of abhor all of them. But I basically said that of the Fox people, I think maybe Tucker Carlson is probably one of the best. <laughs> and that's not saying much. I even say that. And so then I said Tucker Carlson makes sense because he pointed out that the upper classes are dividing the lower classes mm -hmm. and distracting them from class struggle by making us focus on more granular tactics that divide us. And he said that on Fox and I was amazed <laughs> that he said it. So I pointed this out to the guy online and that guy basically said that if a thief is picking your pocket and telling you that stealing is wrong, then you've been had. It's just like pure ad hominem, right? Like the, Tucker Carlson, bad, Fox, bad. Therefore, anything they say is bad. But 
even in that example, like, think about it. If a thief, no, but even if a thief is currently having his hand in my pocket and telling me that stealing is wrong, Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that stealing is suddenly right because a thief cannot be right. The thief is currently correct in his statement that yes, stealing is wrong, but he's just ignoring that. A thief is not always bad. No, the fact alone has to be brought down, not the person. They might have a motivated interest and you can argue that, that's fine. That doesn't change the truth of what they're saying. Yes, stealing is wrong. Thief said it. So by this definition, I guess, because a thief said it while doing it, then it must not be a truth. He may not be saying it genuinely, but he's still correct. Oh, yes, that's so true. Because despite him doing it, because hypocrisy doesn't make the person wrong. I was taking it originally as thief equals bad and then trying to argue the other side of the perspective of maybe this person has a starving child and they need just a few coins to buy something. I don't know. <laughs> I have the thief with a golden heart. I mean, you can take that <laughs> angle, but that's further down than I'm going. Right. It is further down. What ended up funny enough happening was he told me that I was the ideal viewer of Fox. <laughs> oh, that is very unlikely. Yes. Because <laughs> my parents will sometimes watch it, my dad, and I will be listening to it. When I was stuck there during the pandemic, uh, I would be listening to it in the background while doing something and just laugh out loud at the ridiculousness of the shit they say, like just pure logical fallacy and a lot of conjecture (laughs) that they try to paint up as fact. But let's not get uh, that's enough said about Fox. Well, Fox and a lot of other news sources as well, not just Fox, are good examples of all all or nothing thinking. For sure. Mainstream news, it really likes to be like, you know, this person bad, this other person good. Very much, yeah. And it's just oversimplifying reality. So a very common. Yeah. Like an evil person can accidentally do good sometimes and a good person can accidentally Mm -hmm. do evil. And this is already painting a false dichotomy between good and bad people. And this is, so this is a very politically and and socially relevant discussion. And, and it really highlights the nature of the concept, but for mental health, could you imagine how maybe this might be a relevant thing to look at as in terms of a distorted thought? Very much. I've had it shoved in my face in past relationships because uh, they said that because the relationship was ending, then the entire thing was a complete waste of time. Right. So I've had some experience with that, or I guess myself, I've kind of struggled with if I can't do it well or perfect a long time ago, if I can't do it well or perfect, then I might as well not do it. Or I have to really prepare forever so that I can just do it well the first time. And that's kind of why I focused on a lot of the topics I have in the past podcast episodes, because those were personal flaws. Yeah. And that's exactly perfectionism is huge in this. It's uh, either perfect or a total failure. There's no in between and there's no ability to see that shade of gray. And that prevents people from doing things that they want to do in life. It can lead to a lot of procrastination. Procrastination People like to think, oh, they're just lazy. But what really is driving procrastination often is perfectionism. And it comes from this all or nothing way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And so that's what really is the true underlying block. And, and so that's the, that's the cognitive theory of depression and anxiety. It comes from this idea that if we, our problems come from distorted ways of thinking about the world. And if we can address those underlying distortions, we can address the depression or the anxiety. So this is CBT's model, right? Yep. This is yep, CBT's model. I was going to say, I can, I can relate with that because writing, I have to write every day and I can find myself just putting it off and putting it off because I, I don't know if it's because I'm afraid of it not being great or if I'm afraid of maybe just, I know I'm going to sit down and finish it or once I get started, I know I won't, I won't be able to take a break for a while. I don't actually know what it is, but 
this seems to be relevant to that. Yeah. And if we were having a conversation about it, we would really pull it apart and really dig down into that situation and analyze what's going on there. And uh, there are there a bunch of therapeutic tools you can use for all of these things. And one of them being CBT thought records, for example, if you've ever heard of that. It's one way to document and and journal these very specific situations so that you can reframe the way you're thinking about it and move forward with a more realistic attitude. Have you heard of the thought records? I might have in passing. I've never actually been trained in or experienced CBT, but I've read about it. I think you write down I'm assuming you basically you write down the recurring thoughts you find yourself being caught in a number of times, particularly when you have issues. Is that correct? Yeah. So there's uh, several uh, columns on, on this. And uh, the first one would be you would document the situation and you would say the situation would be going to sit down to write the article. And then the second column would be the emotion or feeling. You would say what's going on in terms of your emotion. What are you feeling in your body? And you would just try to describe what's going on there. And you would, you could rate that feeling from one to 10. And then you would look at the next column and say, what negative automatic thought is driving this emotion right now? What is underlying that? And uh, that, that this is where the cognitive distortion comes in. So you might say something like, um, I'm not going to know what to write or what might be the automatic thought associated with that anxiety when sitting down to write? I mean, there's a general range of words that I'm aiming for. I'm usually aiming for above 1500 words. So just the minimum of that kind of makes me feel like I might not have enough to say, although it's never actually an issue after I start going. Another, I guess, is once I start work, then I I am in work mode and I, I can't have to stop everything else. And I guess just stopping myself from sitting down and starting because I feel like I guess one of the things I've caught myself saying is basically, I I have to finish this. If I start it, then I must finish it Mm -hmm. in one sitting and one go. And that alone can stop me from starting. Okay. Because you're like, oh, it's a whole obstacle, this whole gauntlet I need to get through. So I see, I see two automatic thoughts that I guess amplify each other in a sense. It's when I sit down, I have to finish this all in one shot and I don't know if I'll have enough to write. So that means it can really lead to, if if realistic, and that's true, both of those things, you could potentially be trapped in that seat for for eternity, really. (laughs) I never know when I'm, (laughs) I never know when I'll be able to get up because I don't know if I can uh, accomplish the limit. And therefore I will have to accept failure because I won't be able to do it. And it's too much and it's overwhelming. So I won't start yet because I won't be able to do it perfect. Some days are better than others because I I write five stories a week, Monday to Friday each day. And if I do my planning, well, which I just remember today's Sunday. So if I do my planning well, I sit down and I I make a skeleton for every story. And then I have an easier time starting because there's this map basically that I have to follow. And then now I am basically when I sit down, I say, okay, I'm just going to finish the first chapter and then I can take a break if I want. And and so you've developed strategies that work for you then? Yeah, because I find it's easy to get stuck in like, oh, I have to do it all because I do have to finish one each day. But by making these smaller bite-sized chunks, baby stepping. Once you pass the barrier, once you pass the success point, which is usually quite low if you're doing baby steps, Mm -hmm. then you kind of often are free to stop at any point. And because you're free to stop at any point, you're like, well, let's see how far I can go before I really need to stop. And then you end up finishing the story. So I think for me specifically, it's a matter of tricking myself into starting. Yeah. So you've, you've really developed some highly specific strategies around this to really 
mitigate the chances of that automatic thought taking hold. And now let's say somebody didn't have all that figured out right now, and they really came to that place of, I'm not good enough. I'm not able to do this. I can't do this. I'm, I'm useless. And they started spiraling into those types of thoughts. And it really becomes personal now. It's, it's about me as an incompetent person. And, and this is very common. Universal. Yeah. So the, the next step in the next, yeah, the next step for this to pop yourself out of this spiraling, let's say you don't have your strategies that you've already developed over time. The next step in this column would be evidence that supports this thought. So you would write down anything that's supporting. I won't have enough to say, and I will need to write this until I'm done. As you can probably already tell, there's not a lot of evidence that's supporting it because in your own experience in the past, you've found you've often exceeded the limit. So that next column you would put, it's evidence that does not support the thought. So then you'd have quite a bit to write there. You would have, you know, well, the, the previous times I've done this, I've been able to write more than expected. Um, I have been able to take a break and walk away without feeling like a failure. Uh, and you would, you would really find all of the evidence that uh, is against that and supporting a more realistic situation. And then the next column, you would write that realistic thought. Well, it sounds like you're taking like a, a pros and cons list of the for and against this particular thought, right? Taking inventory? Yeah. Yeah. And it's the, really the purpose here is, is it allow, in doing this exercise, it allows you to step back rather than get trapped into the, the, the spiraling of it all. And so seeing the thought as just a thought rather than a, a meaningful truth about you as a person, that's the whole power of all of this. This sounds like you're leaning towards cognitive diffusion. That's exactly it. And so the, the research on why does this work, it's, it's not exactly why you would think. You would think, oh, it works because you're a rational being who comes to the rational conclusion, and that's that. But a lot of psychology, as you know, shows that we are not driven by our reason, but by our emotions. And what this process of journaling the the situation, the underlying emotion, the automatic thought, and the evidence for and against that, and then coming to the more realistic thought allows you to step back out of that spiraling and to really choose how you want to move forward based on a more realistic picture of the situation. That's the thought record. It's it's really one of the, the major tools used in cognitive behavioral therapy to challenge these distortions. And the first distortion we looked at was all or nothing thinking, but maybe it's time to move to another one. Mm, let's hear it. Well, the second one would be overgeneralization. So this would be like, let's say you get, uh, as the example says on this website here, if you get a C on a test and you conclude that you are stupid and a failure, can you relate to... Doesn't sound like it's at all relevant to what we've talked about already <laughs> on the podcast. It is perfectly tied into that fixed mindset as we discussed in that episode. Saying something about you as a person if you fail, or you can overgeneralize really anything. But that particular example is very fitting. It sounds like you've already given examples of overgeneralization as well, because in the previous one, the all or nothing, you're basically saying, OK, I didn't get it like 100 percent. So this was a complete failure. Therefore, I'm a piece of garbage and I'm just not worth living. So that last component, because of this, then all of me is bad. That's the overgeneralization, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so many of these these first few, you can really argue that there's so much overlap and it's, it's like splitting hairs to really like, it doesn't really matter which one you label it as like, oh, is it all or nothing? Or is it overgeneralization? I don't really know. Like, it doesn't really matter 
what you label it. It's the underlying process that, uh, that really does matter. Just faulty thinking basically should be the flag. Faulty thinking. Or cognitive distortion, but that's a, yeah, that's the, that's the more fancy words for the yeah. same thing. And, and so the, the next one, again, is fairly similar, but a little bit different. Uh, it's called a mental filter. Mm. Like overgeneralization, there could be a focus on a single negative piece of information that excludes all positive information in that situation. And I guess this relates to the, the concept of the RAS or the reticular activation system mm-hmm. in our brain where we are primed to, to think of something negatively and now we just see negativity everywhere we look. I'm going to catch you on that to elaborate because the RAS is basically your system in your brain that filters out useless information and focuses on things that help with survival. Yeah. So success, sex, uh, avoiding death, just general threats and general benefits in the environment because we pay attention to everything. It's just overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Sorry continue. No, that's, that's exactly it. And all of this is exactly a survival mechanism. Mm-hmm. So our mental filter to focus on negative stimuli is actually a, a very useful survival mechanism developed over our evolution to avoid predators avoid becoming prey hmm. and say like, look, there's a venomous spider. You should run. So we, we develop fears of things that could potentially kill us. And it's very easy to get killed in human history. I'm seeing this lead towards selfish gene theory, which is our genes don't care if we're happy. Our genes just care if we're able to continue the, the genetic line. Yes. And so we would definitely focus on things that would help for survival, but might actually make us miserable. And that's exactly it. And having self-compassion when these situations come up in a way that it's not you that's bad for engaging these processes, it's what our brains do. And, and to really be able to step back and say, this is just how our brains work. This is how everyone's brain works to some degree. And is it useful right now? It's just faulty legacy programming. Yeah. And and to be able to step back from this program and say, oh, I'm noticing a lot of threats right now. Oh, that's my brain trying to protect me. Oh, thank you, brain, for trying to protect me. But that's not helping right, me right now. So I'm just going to go focus on this over here. And that's a little conversation. It's very act. <laughs> yeah, that's that's an, that's actually a useful way of talking to the brain. So the, the thought record is one tool. But what I just said right there is kind of more of a an acceptance and commitment therapy (laughs) approach, Hmm. which builds on this cognitive behavioral therapy. And it's more about uh, allowing it to be and focusing elsewhere. Focusing elsewhere? Which are we talking about? The allowing the thought to be and not resisting it, you mean? Yeah. And so I find a very helpful one for this mental filter is what I just said, thanking your mind you wouldn't really want to necessarily think to do it, like thanking your mind for telling you everything's bad. Like when you're in everything's bad and I'm a failure because I got a C on this test and I'm only going to focus on the negative now. And this person cut me off. When you're focused on all of that, you're not necessarily in a space to step back and thank your mind. But so this useful, this kind of a counterintuitive approach is that when you recognize or have the insight of what's happening right now, you can choose to think differently. And what that looks like is not resisting and say, okay, focus on positive, only focus on the positive and neglect the negative because that doesn't work. You try to focus just on the positive, it'll, it'll get you stuck even more. So what this does is is it kind of leans into it and says, okay, thank you, mind, for trying to protect me right now. I recognize this evolutionary temptation to, to focus on negative things. 
And you know what? Right now, I just need to focus on this other thing. So I'm going to redirect my focus to that. Yeah. That makes me, I've had a few thoughts as I was listening to you there. Yeah. What are you thinking? Uh, one is the idea that what you resist persists Yes. when it comes to emotions. I don't like this, so I'm going to push it away. But then because you keep pushing it away, you're, you're inevitably going to be focusing on that thing because mm-hmm. you're constantly having to check back. Does it exist? Does it exist? And it'll continue to feed that thought and keep it there. Yeah. And it also never gets to really fully express itself because you're always trying to shove it away like an unwanted child. Yeah. So the goal of a thought record, I think people misinterpret it when, when they get handed a thought record in their therapeutic approach. They, they think this is like the, the big eraser for my thoughts. If only I can use this, I will no longer think the negative things and I will be positive all the time. And that's not a helpful way to approach these tools. Well, no, nothing is a cure-all. And as well, we shouldn't, we shouldn't aim to be happy at all times. Exactly. And and that this tool is is something that'll help you step back, not something that will turn you into a perfectly rational being all the time. Hmm. I'd like to talk a little bit about mindfulness at the moment, because that was the other thing that came to mind. Okay. So yeah. mindfulness in this moment would be kind of the, the part of it I'm thinking about right now is how... When you're thinking, people identify entirely, as we're talking about cognitive diffusion, which I don't think you actually defined yet, but normally people are fused with their thoughts. I am my thoughts. I am my feelings. This is me. And not where mindfulness tries to make a distinction that Mm -hmm. I am the observer of my thoughts. Actually, this week I wrote a story for children that kind of touched on the fact that your thoughts and your feelings and your opinions, they all kind of just surface out of the ether, if you think about it. If I say like, what is the capital of Thailand? If you know the answer, maybe that that answer will just bubble to the surface and you can answer it right now. If you don't, or, or if you haven't heard it in a while, then maybe it'll take a bit to bubble to the surface and then you'll be like, oh, there it is. But if you don't know it, then it just you'll try to reach out and nothing will come. But regardless, it's just this automatic process where if you know it, you know it, and if you don't, you don't. I think that's a really interesting facet of how memory works, but that's kind of off the point. Mm. Well, it's a letting go process, is it not? Somewhat. Observing it like a TV screen or like a bunch of other metaphors that Axe has, where something appears in the screen and you can view it and look at it and evaluate it if you so choose. But it's still there, but it is not It is not the TV. The, the picture on the screen is not the TV. The TV is still a separate thing, which would be the thought in the mind, right? I'm telling you stuff that I'm sure you've already taught me. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So these are, these are different tools, I guess. And mindfulness is the big piece of this. And especially in, in mindfulness based CBT or, or act acceptance commitment therapy, as well as DBT, which we talked about last time, dialectical behavioral therapy. There's a lot of mindfulness skills that are, that are huge in all of this. Hmm. Yeah. So maybe we can jump to the next ones. And I say the word jump because it's jumping to conclusions. Uh, there's two ways we can jump to conclusions in terms of cognitive distortions. It's uh, mind reading and fortune telling. Oof, very familiar with those. <laughs> mind reading is you try to predict what somebody else is thinking, or you believe you know what somebody else is thinking based on like they did a smirk and you're like, oh, they, they disrespected me. They're laughing at me. Yeah. They mock me. Uh, yeah, yeah. And the fortune telling is like jumping to conclusion of... Because my one relationship failed, all of them will fail, and I'm doomed to be miserable. So, any thoughts that come to mind? But I could see these, these. I mean, the way you're painting them is that they're purely negative, but I could see these things being actually functional and enabling beliefs. How so? In a way, if you flip them, like, 
uh, I have been successful, so I will continue to be successful. And so you'll continue to try stuff. Oh yeah. And, and I think that's, that's an interesting way to look at it, but you're not jumping to the conclusion that you're going to be successful. Well, you could, I guess. That's fortune telling the one I was going with. Yeah. Or a, a woman gives you a look and you say, ah, she's into me. And so you go and talk to her. So having unrealistic confidence actually can be beneficial. I, I guess. Yeah. I've never thought of it that way. That's interesting. Though I guess unrealistic confidence, the problem with that is it often when it's not based on anything, if once it gets challenged and they like poke and prod at it, they see it's just a facade and the person often can lash out because they, they, they feel good, but they know when somebody starts challenging it, they, they seek for the supports that hold up their their self-concepts that they're so valuable and they end up coming up empty. And it's, it's really a fixed mindset too, if you think about it, because if you're going to jump to the conclusion that I've been successful, I'm always going to be, and then you fail and then you now you, you fall into yeah. catastrophizing and taking it personally. And now you're, you're back into a, another cognitive distortion. Yeah. So it seems like even if it is at one point positive, it could easily turn self-destructive. Yeah. I'm glad we walked that through because it's very interesting. <laughs> it fits with like Homer Simpson or like, I guess, 90s, a lot of 90s era media where they're on top of the world and then they have like a bad project or they get they lose their job or something and then they're just, they spiral off into alcoholism and whatever else. Yeah. And that, that very well goes into the next cognitive distortion, which is catastrophizing. And that's kind of how you just used that word a minute ago. Mm. And that would be the danger of fortune. Did I say that? No, I said it. <sighs> ah. I said, it's one of the risks of having a fixed mindset of jumping to the conclusion that you're always going to be successful. Mm. Because if you're not, and you don't have that, that growth mindset, you can fall into another cognitive distortion, which is to catastrophize. And what that means is it's just making a mountain out of a molehill or things being all terrible and you can never recover. And it's like magnifying the situation in your, in your mind. Tying it back to the fixed mindset, it, I think it'd be summed up in the phrase, yeah. maybe I've lost it. <laughs> maybe I've lost it. Whatever maybe, it is. Maybe I never had it. Yeah. Whatever it is. Maybe it. But you hear people say these phrases, right? Yeah. Maybe, oh, I think I lost it. Oh no. My, my career is over. My one good idea was not successful. I lost my mojo and I can't get it back. Yeah. Austin Powers. Dated reference. <laughs> yeah. So catastrophizing... This is very similar to a lot of the things we were talking about before. It's focusing on the negative over all else. And then not only that, but amplifying it in your mind to be that everything's going to come crashing down and you're kind of almost predicting the future. So in a sense, it's a form of fortune telling as well, and that you're predicting a catastrophized future where everything's bad. Mm. Kind of like uh, the perfectionist students in high school where they'd say, if I lose this, if I fail this test and I'll get a bad score in this this class, and then that'll stop me from getting into my college. And then my whole career is ruined. And maybe that's true. I, I honestly, looking back, all of those things don't really matter. So I would never think that that's true. Maybe, very unlikely, maybe. Maybe because they failed this test, they ended up going and started doing drugs, had a, a baby, and then dropped out of all school. Possible. Unlikely. Remember we talked about, what's the last concept we talked about? I'm, I'm being reminded right now of that. Fortune telling? No, the last concept on the podcast was um, 
Emergence. Ah. Yes. So this is reminding me of Emergence now in that we, uh, the one thing leads to another and you have a, a, an amplify, a self amplifying situation. Mm. You fail one test and you actually, you actually drop out and you're, and you become homeless and all the rest. I can see how you made the connection, but I think it usually has to do with a number of simple automated processes interacting together. Mm. Maybe not automated, but simple self-driven processes that interact uh, to make complexity. So Kind of, I guess, if we put a bunch of people that thought like this together, we could see some sort of toxic sludge, social toxic sludge uh, kind of produce itself. Right, right. That, well, I guess that's what the internet is in some corners. <laughs> right. So I see that on a broader a broader level then. But uh, in, in terms of your... Yeah. And the reason why I asked, well, maybe maybe it could happen is really to to provoke the, the argument against that, because usually it, it, usually if I would have asked that, I guess the, the person would have went the other way. And it's a little different in our conversation because you actually did hypothetically walk down that path. But like, imagine now I, I, I asked that question. Well, okay, well, you know, maybe everything's going to be terrible if you do fail this test. What will somebody generally say back to that? They'll probably refute it. I would imagine. <laughs> exactly. They will generally argue in favor of a more helpful way of looking at things. Although, honestly, maybe because I know you, but I, I felt like that was a disingenuous statement. I just addressed it anyway because of the fact that we're speaking on a podcast. And I threw it out there for fun and de- disingenuously just to see what happened. But if you were to say it in, in a very genuine way, just like, okay, so maybe if that happens, then then you become homeless if you fail this test. And and, th- and that and just me saying it, the person completely pops out of whatever they were in and they're like, oh, well, if you put it like that, I guess it sounds pretty unrealistic. <laughs> it does. It seems like an element of reverse psychology. It makes me think of Chris Voss's getting to know. Yeah. Getting, to, getting to know. So I'm, and what am I doing? I'm not saying anything new. I'm literally just giving voice to that cognitive distortion. I'm putting a voice to it. So it's in their head. They're thinking it. They're not, not necessarily saying it, but when we really get down to that's what it is, and I say it in a very calm, matter-of-fact tone without catastrophizing in my tone. Like, oh, well, no, maybe maybe that's true. But if I can say it in a way that's like, okay, so you failed this test. And you know what? Maybe, maybe you're right. And they're like, no. Nah. <laughs> like that one uh, video I sent you on Instagram where the guy's like, maybe I'm just born to die. And the other guy says, okay. Okay. Yeah. Just, okay. Yeah, sure. Maybe. I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's half the power and it's not invalidating. It's not making fun of it. If you do it right, it's, it, it normalizes what's going on or validates it. Oh, but, but that's the difficult part though, is like selling it. Cause for many years, for the longest time, if I try to do like the Socratic method of what I'm currently able to do, but still sometimes fail mm. is asking them genuinely to explain because as you and I both think Chris Voss, okay, just a background. He wrote a book called Never Split the Difference. He's a, was an FBI negotiator for hostages and has a lot of insights into this sort of stuff. He says basically that if you're curious, you can't get offended. And so I have been trying to do that. And it's actually great because people often have very simplistic views of how the system works, how politics and the country work. And so if you just ask them genuinely, genuinely try to understand, because maybe they do know something you don't know. And so I'm trying to really lean into that and be like, okay, so you think that our current financial system is going to collapse any day now and that we're headed for financial ruin. Mm -hmm. Please walk me through these steps. Like, how do we get from here to there? I understand you think this is going to be a big thing. So like just one by one, let's let the dominoes fall and let's go through to where it's going to go. And so now taking that stance, I can get people to argue with themselves and 
unconvinced themselves of the certainty they had. However, where I would falter in the past was that I wouldn't genuinely want to know. I was just asking them questions Mm -hmm. and it would often come off as condescension. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly it. It's not necessarily what you're saying, but how you're saying it as well. Mm. And you really have to suspend your your belief here and you can't have an agenda when you go into this you have to legitimately be open to that other person's reality and having your mind changed yeah yeah you have you have to be very open to well maybe you're right let's let's look at that and they immediately turn the other way and say well you know okay maybe it's not the end of the world if i fail this test i failed tests in the in the past and i did well in the next one so what's the most helpful way i can move forward and then you get you get some progress rather than spiraling because the goal is not to let go of your attachment to success and doing well it's to really hold on to those values, but letting go of the unhelpful thoughts that are blocking you from getting that in the baggage that you're carrying. Yeah. Yes. Sounds very useful. Are there any other ones you want to talk about or do you want to give us a closing thought? There's a few more. They're, they're, they're all very similar. So I'm going to skip over a few. Let's look at control fallacies because I always found them very interesting. There's two versions of the control fallacies. It's that you over-assume your level of control over a situation hmm. or underassume your level of control over the situation. The first one, you are doing too much, assuming you have control over things you do not. The opposite is you fall into victim mentality and you just don't do enough because you feel like you have no control over anything. Learned helplessness. Yeah. So these are distorted ways of thinking about your level of control over a situation. Hmm. Anything come to mind? Um, I guess... It made me think about how responsibility is a basic tenet of stoicism and how, generally speaking, even if something was completely out of your control and it was you're a complete victim and maybe it would have happened regardless, you can still take some level of responsibility and say, okay, what what could have helped this in the past? What could I have done that might have made this damage less? How can I use this to move forward? And what can I do from now on to prevent something like that going wrong in the way that it did? And even if it wasn't your fault, this is, again, regardless of blame, you still have to function and and deal with your life. So I think taking some responsibility would be helpful. But I just wonder how to straddle that line from the fallacy of being helpless, because then you think, oh, there's nothing I could have done. Absolutely nothing. And the other being that I could have completely stopped this and protected everybody and nobody would have got hurt at all. But both of those are unrealistic. So how, how would you walk that line? Well, it would be similar to what I said before of walking openly into the situation with the person. And I'm talking about how I would walk the line in a counseling scenario. Yeah. I'm talking about individuals by themselves, though. About whether or not you actually have control over the situation? Yeah, like you would help them walk through this, but yeah. given that you are not going to be counseling any of them, yeah. probably. At that moment. Uh, what? How can they best protect themselves from this? So how can they uh, hypothesis test whether they're falling into this control fallacy? Well, the first step is to ask yourself, am I falling into a control fallacy? And you don't need to actually use that word if you forget what the word is. But it's the insight of knowing that maybe you're falling into a distortion right now. And that's the first step. Because if you don't know, there's no taking the step back. Hmm. You can't take a step back from something that you don't know is happening. This inventory you mentioned earlier, would that also apply for this? For all cognitive distortions? Exactly, it would. And and so the thought record could be one tool. If you if you know about the thought hmm. record, you could type into Google CBT thought record and you'll find a ton of them. You could print them out and keep them in your pocket or notebook or whatever. I'm sure there's even an app for it. There's probably even an app for it, I bet. 
tons of them probably. So first, if you have that insight and you say, okay, this is one of those situations happening right now, that's the question you'd ask yourself. Is this one of those situations like I've had in the past where I'm falling into that trap, the falling into the cognitive distortion? And then once you do that, you can use something like the thought record to describe the situation and describe what is going on right now in terms of your underlying emotions. And then you would go into uh, what is the automatic thought here? And that's the distortion. So you would ask yourself, okay, maybe what I'm thinking right now automatically is I need to fix that other person. Hmm. Oh, that's the thought. The thought that I need to fix that other person. Is that a distortion? Or I mean, that is obviously not a great way to think because that implies the other person is broken and you have the solution. But is that, uh, do you have a label for that? Um, that Well, it's the control fallacy. Uh, over-assuming, oh. uh, so over-assuming your level of control in a situation. So let's say you're over-assuming that you are capable to fix someone who has deep issues that are far beyond your capacity. And it requires, let's say, like a team of professionals or maybe medical support, um, psychological support. And now you're taking it upon yourself to do something that's beyond your control. But you have the control fallacy of, I can control this. Good old savior complex. Yeah. And there could be other things that are underlying it, like, uh, I'm not enough. Maybe if I do more, I'll feel like enough and feel like a valuable person. So you can, you can look at those types of things of, am I coming from this, from a place of deficit? Am I coming from this in a place of uh, needing to control something that I can't control? And once you've identified, oh, I'm trying to do this and I don't have control. Do I have control over the situation? Realistically, no, I do not have control over that other person. They are free to make their own decisions in the same way I am. What is the evidence for and against my ability to do this? And then you would come to the alternate, more realistic thought of this person has the freedom to make their choice and I can do this realistic action that is supportive and letting go of having to fix everything. So it's coming to a more realistic place after you've kind of stepped back, walked through all these steps and let go of the fallacy and, and really decided to move forward in the most productive way. Right. Without that comes to mind is the practical approach to when people start complaining that I've come up with a kind of step by step. What's that? First, they'll say, ah, oh, this problem, this problem sucks. And so then you can ask them, are you complaining because you just want to get it off your chest or are you looking for some input for how to fix it? That is the number one question I ask myself every time I take a crisis call. <laughs> yes. So that's the first step. The second step, yep. even if the person says, okay, supposing they say, uh, I want, I want some input. What I always find frustrating is people giving me the, without, usually they don't ask that first question. They just jump into trying to fix, mm -hmm. but they mm -hmm. often jump to the very most obvious basic things. And I catch myself doing the same thing. But really, if you think about it, the underlying yeah. communicated message you're saying is you're kind of stupid, aren't you? You didn't, you probably didn't do these really basic things and it's annoying because it's like of course i checked if it was plugged in of course i went through like the basic checklist so instead of doing that i think what i'm trying to install in myself is the habit of saying so what have you tried so far and how did that work out and then yep. so what are you considering right now getting a lay of the land so then they feel i think again it's the whole seek first to understand before trying to be understood Mm -hmm. uh, just figuring out what they've done, what their approach is, what they're thinking, and then finally weighing in because then you actually have information and won't just be shot down. Yeah, that's actually the core of the solution focused uh, strength based <laughs> model of counseling. And 
<laughs> That's exactly the question you'd ask yourself as a counselor who has a temptation to potentially fall into distorted control fallacies of believing you can control something. Mm. In, in that example, I would combat my desire to fix everyone who calls and ask, okay, what is the purpose of your call right now? Is it that you want advice or is it that you want to deescalate? And I think a lot of the time, the person just wants to deescalate. They're heightened. And the goal is to go from like a, a, a nine down to like maybe a, a four. In terms of their stress, distress? There's their escalation and their stress and anxiety or whatever's going on right now. Hmm. And so that's the, what I ask right in the beginning of the conversation is how can I be of uh, most support to you right now? And not assuming that they want advice right away mm. because maybe they don't. And, and generally, really every time that I've seen, they already have the answers. They know what they need to do. That They know their own strengths. They know the specific things. Good. This is where I wanted to yes. finish this on with you talking about them being the experts of their own lives. People are the experts of their own lives and you just have to pull it out of them because they already know and collaborate with them on that. Yes. Actually, that is another thing I was thinking about. I said I wanted to talk about something at the beginning of this and we just didn't. Yep. Uh, the thing was... Now we'll talk about the end. Uh, well, it's actually perfectly related because the way memory works sometimes, the way the mind works is we know a lot of stuff that we don't consciously know. It's buried somewhere in there. And I've noticed that I've been doing Pilates exercises, just the very basics, the 100s, if you're familiar. And I realized my friend at the beginning of the pandemic, she was teaching me Pilates stuff online and she ran me through the same routine a bunch of times. Now I forget most of that and I forget a lot of the little pointers. And so I started doing it just as much as I could remember. But then I realized that the more I did it, the more I uncovered more knowledge about that topic that she had taught me before, but I had already forgotten. And it's really weird because like I always knew it. Mm -hmm. Nobody told me any extra information. It's been a kind of relatively closed system on that. And yet I keep uncovering more and more information. And so I guess that might be the most practical way to help somebody get through these things because they actually have the answers. It's just that maybe they need somebody to help them yeah. excavate their, their ruins of their mind. Yeah, that's exactly it. And so this, this list of cognitive distortions, if you see someone struggling and you're maybe a new psychology grad or something that is armed with all of the knowledge of psychology, it might be tempting <laughs> to simply go to that person and say, here, here's all the cognitive distortions. You're doing that one. Don't do it. Stop. And here's a way to fix it. Do the thought record. This is actually the cure. It'll get rid of it. So it's very tempting to go that route, but it, it really doesn't work. And, and so that people are the experts of their own lives approach is how you would be most helpful armed with this knowledge, not just for other people, but for yourself as well. And taking that gentler approach to yourself and really having that self-compassion the same way you would have compassion for other people who are, who are suffering. Yeah. Being like a, a little thought detective, investigating where the thoughts originate, yeah. who they work for, shake them down. Yeah. I like it. I like that metaphor. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Being curious about your own experience and, yeah. and not beating yourself up over it. At the beginning, I said the whole thing of this is to examine your life. And I was going to say the whole quote from Socrates was the unexamined life is not worth living, which is taking it a bit extreme. But examining your life does make it a lot more worthwhile because you can find the ways that are your sticking points and your, your pain points, and you can reduce them significantly by exploring them with an open mind. Is there anything else you want to add to this? Because I think that's a 
probably a good place to close. I love it. You always come up with the best conclusions, even when it's my topic. <laughs> I was wondering how you were going to do it. So I'm like, oh, let's just, this came to mind. Let's just go with it. <laughs> well, you did it. I like it. We'll, we'll end it there. Great. Well, thank you for listening to the podcast and we hope to see you again next week. Take care. I'm a piece of garbage. You are stupid and a failure. I'm not good enough. I'm hold on, hold on. I've got a I, I have a warm-up practice. I looked up some, <laughs> some tongue twisters. Big black bug bit a big black bear, and the big black bear bled black blood. Okay, I'm good. Got that sultry tone. Yeah. All right, all right, all right. A little Matthew McConaughey up in here.